the length of the toenails of Daniel's image. What is the eschatological ramifications of that? And uh, find out that. That would be a great discussion. <laughs> that was a joke. A <laughs> theological joke. Not that good of a joke. And uh, somebody said to me last night, I won't ever point Ken out when he told me this last night that my jokes are not that funny. <laughs> but they're better than his. <laughs> Just kidding, Ken. I was, uh, it was 2007. It was April 19th to be exact. And I was at Moody Bible Institute. We were ministering there. And I got a phone call. We were talking to students, etc. And I got a phone call. And I'm thinking it's a student on campus that got my number and wanted to talk to me. It was a young lady. <coughs> Pardon me. And she's 19 years of age. And she asked me this question. She said, Chris. Actually, she wasn't from Moody at all. She was calling from Michigan. And just happened. I, so I'm thinking this is a student here at Moody. She asked me this question. She said, Chris, how do you keep it going? How do you keep the Christian life and the fire for the Christian life going? How do you do it? What, what is the secret? Because she said, she said I, I'm just, I'm dry as toast. I, I don't know how to keep this going. And you got any wisdom for me? And I, I really would like to know. And I really got me think. We, we had a discussion. We were talking. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a great question. Because a lot of us feel that way. A lot of us might go through some dry periods, if you please, in the f trying to find out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, bro. Uh, trying to find out how to... Uh, how to keep the, the Christian life moving. How to keep it not only moving, but keep it rich, keep it vital, keep it lubed, if you please. How do you do that? And, uh, and that's the title of our little discussion this evening, is Keeping It Going. And uh, I'd like us to look at, a, we're going to look at a number of passages in the New Testament. But the Bible gives us four characteristics that the Christian must have in his or her life in order to be faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, It is required of a steward to be found faithful. And I think that that is so true. It's required in a steward to be found faithful. And this is one of the things I think that we, we want to be. One of my favorite, most favorite all-time hymns is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, I think that that's the unofficial school song of the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, you know, if you graduated from Moody Bible Institute and you had to look at those words, uh, you're in trouble, you know, uh, when you sing the song. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. The guy that wrote that song, I think his name is Thomas Chisholm, uh, was, a, was a part of Moody Bible Institute. And uh, it's one of the, my all-time favorite songs, uh, hymns. If you please, and is moreover is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So how does how do you keep it going? What are the characteristics that you got to have in your life to keep your Christian life vibrant, rich, full? What do you got to do? Okay, let's talk about it. What are these characteristics? Well, first of all, the the Christian 
must be informed. The Christian must be informed. The Bible teaches faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You do not have growing, vibrant faith without the word of God. Now you can say, well, what if I get thrown into prison? And I'm, I'm in prison for 30 years and they take away the Bible from me, etc. Well, is that your situation right now? Uh, the answer is no. So God, let, let God deal with it then. You know, but you do have a Bible. Most of us have multiple Bibles. Most of us have, some of us have computer Bibles. We've got uh, Kindle Bibles. We've got, I mean, we've got all, this, all these things, right? It's just amazing. The Christian must be informed. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Would you turn there, please? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And this is one of the... Uh, actually, this is the theme verse of Moody Bible Institute. Now, I'm not selling Moody Bible Institute tonight. I just happened to go there. And this is their theme verse. And it's, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is exactly what it is. To study to show ourselves approved unto God. And uh, what we want to do is we must be informed. Now, what must, what must we be informed about? I think one of the things, or a few things that we need, need to be informed about is man's condition. Man is lost. Do you believe the Bible? I hope you do. Uh, I'm thinking of that, that uh, ministerial candidate that was being interviewed by other ministers. And he was sitting there and they had this big battery of guys. They wanted to ordain him. Uh, and so they, they said, uh, one guy would fire a question at him. He said, do you believe in the hypostatic union of Christ? And <clears throat> this, this ministerial candidate looked at him and says, isn't the Bible? And the questioner answered, he says, yes it is. He says, then I believe it. Is what do you think about the deity of Christ? Is it in the Bible? Then I believe it. But that's not good enough, actually. What we need to know is what does it say about the deity of Christ? What does it say about the hypostatic union of Christ? What does it say about, well, not necessarily the length of the toenails of Daniel's image. Uh, I don't think that's a big one. I've never seen J. Dwight Pentecost write on that or anything else like that. But I'm, and that's kind of still that's that joke thing. Anyway, I'm, I'm just, I'm, we're trying to, anyway, we need to understand man's condition. And the Bible teaches clearly that man is sinful. Man is sinful. Romans chapter 3, 23. Romans 3, 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. Then your neighbor might be the nicest person in all the, all the world. They might cut your lawn for you if that's your case. Uh, they might you know, be there when you're in the hospital. They might come and visit you. They might help do things for you. But without Jesus Christ, what does the Bible say about their condition? They're lost. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 323, 623, the wages of sin is death. So you work on a patient. Or you're interacting with a son. You know, these people without Jesus Christ are lost. They're just lost. And that's what we have to understand. Man's condition, apart from God, is that they're lost. Then they need a Savior. And in... Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. We touched on this this morning, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And turn there if you would, because this is, this is really a critical, uh, you know, some people don't like this verse. And quite frankly, I don't. I, I love it, the verse, because it's the word of God. But the ramifications are staggering. Notice what he says. In verse 7, and, and Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. This is a young church. Some people say, some people say, well, you know, when you, when you disciple somebody, do not give them all this doctrine. It's just too much for them. Well, tell that to Paul. This particular assembly of believers, the earliest that they were were three weeks when he wrote this. Or, at the oldest, the oldest they would be is three months when he writes these two epistles. And in these two short little epistles, he deals with almost every major doctrine you can think of. Divine retribution, we'll see that in a second. The Trinity, the deity of Christ, the rapture of the church, the Antichrist, Satan, all these different doctrines. He deals with every one of them in the, to this little assembly in Thessalonica. So don't think, well, you know, I can't, I can't interact with somebody when they first get saved. I, it's just too much to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. You better talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. You start right away and you start, you know, moving. And this is exactly what he does. And notice what he says. He's saying, verse 6, it is a right seeing, is it a righteous thing with God to recompense or to pay back tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Look at that verse. That's what he says. Ever being destroyed, but never being consumed. How do you have everlasting destruction? I had a friend of mine that said to me on this verse, he said, Chris, that's aeonius in the Greek. That means it's a terminus point. That means it ends. I said, is that, is that your case, Joe? He goes, absolutely. I said, isn't that interesting, Joe? Because in Romans chapter 16, it says everlasting God's the same word, aeonius. I said, God ends? He goes, well, <laughs> uh, no. I said, then this doesn't mean that either. It's divine retribution forever and ever and ever. Jesus preached more on hell than he did heaven. He preached more on hell than any other subject in the New Testament. He preached more on hell than anybody else in the New Testament. And he died to save us from it. It's an absolute real place. And people without Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter what the, what the funeral director or the mortician can do to the body and making them look like they're sleeping in this casket type of thing. Without Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity. The moment they die, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. They'll first go to hell and hell and Hades will be cast, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. We have to be convinced of this. So all of a sudden, it takes, it takes our whole, the whole idea of the Christian life and what are you going to do for me lately, Jesus, takes it out of the realm of, 
of that and puts it in the realm of, we've got a job to do. If that's true, and it absolutely is what we've just said about man's condition and then man's condemnation, then we've got work to do. Wouldn't you say that's true? And a lot of us are so self-centered. We are. We're very self-centered on how I am doing today. Instead of looking at how the world's doing, and they're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And yet, I'm more concerned about me than I am them. And that's true of my life. To my shame. To my shame. So we need to be... You know, we need to be informed about man's condition and man's condemnation, for sure. And then also God's salvation. You believe this verse, don't you? There's no aim under heaven given among there whereby we must be saved. If that is true, and it is, and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and we believe what Jesus had to say, that I am, when He said, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Then it behooves us to tell them. If He is the only way, and they are condemned without Him, and we have the reprieve, don't you think it makes sense to give it to Him? Or how selfish are we? Seriously, how selfish are we? That we, would not, that we would withhold from people the only thing that makes a difference in their life. The only thing that makes a difference in their eternity. We have to be informed. I like what the, the psalmist said. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I've preached in Wall Street before they shut it down with armed guards and all that kind of stuff. After 9-11, it's like an armed camp. But before then, in the early 80s, I'd preach in front of the stock exchange. And I'd see these limos, one limo picking up, one guy getting in the limo. One guy getting in the limo and going out to the Long Island. Or going, you know, to the Hamptons or someplace like that. I mean, it's just incredible. One guy, right? In fact, they had this one guy. He came to work one day. Had his attache case in a limousine. And he took his... He went up to his, you know, he got out of the limousine. The the, uh, the uh, uh, chauffeur did not think anything weird. He goes out. I guess he thanked the chauffeur, went up to his, I think, 60 floors, took his attache case, and they didn't have movable windows. They didn't have, they have big air conditioning system. Took his attache case, smashed the window out, cleaned the glass out of the casement, threw his attache case out and jumped right behind it. He was the CEO of a big conglomerate. He couldn't take it anymore. He just couldn't take life anymore. You think this guy had it all, and he had nothing. And this is what we have to understand. The salvation that Jesus Christ gives that guy, as well as the guy that was in drag, and, you know, the other day with, you know, I don't want to describe it. But if you were with us in the open air, it was disgusting. That guy needed Jesus. The biggest perverts need Jesus. You know, the guys when we went, oh man, that's like, wow, get away from me, type of thing. They need Christ. And so we need to be informed about this. Why were we so shocked anyway? They're just living out their life. 
They're living out their sinful life. What do we expect from somebody who can't? They can't possibly have a, uh, uh, a moral life before God, right? They can't possibly have a great life before God apart from Jesus Christ. So then we're shocked when they start doing drugs because of the emptiness in their life. We're shocked that they're doing alcohol or they're doing sex or they're doing you know all this kind of stuff. They're so empty. We have Jesus Christ who fills that void, true? And, we, and we're quiet. We're quiet. I was talking to Malcolm the other day. You know, this place is strategically located. This is, uh, you know, I was talking to, to Brian, and he said, you know, the, Miami's a Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, I mean, this is like, the, you know, this is like incredible. And I, and after going down near Cortez Avenue, I guess it's Avenue, and wherever, wherever that other, A1A and Cortez, you know, and the beach there, and I'm going, you know, Brian's right. Brian is absolutely right. This is uh, this is worse than uh, this is worse than Venice Beach, and I didn't know that that was possible. You know, and it's just it was just it's just amazing to me, just amazing. Every one of those people need Jesus Christ. We're here at Boulevard is a lighthouse. I praise God for all the stuff that you do door to door. You got the map over there. How many houses you visited? And then you've got the outreach for the soccer. You got the outreach. I'm thinking, where's the high lie outreach? <laughs> you know, and they play it down here with the scoops and all that. You don't know, have a high lie team. You know, I mean, this is amazing. You guys got you guys got outreaches galore because because you believe in this. You believe we should do this, and thus this place becomes like an emergency room. You know, Steve Price is an emergency room doctor. He does a lot of triage. You'll get people in here with AIDS. You'll get people in here that are drunks. You'll get people in here that'll throw up on the carpet. You'll get people up. I mean, you'll have these kinds of things. But what else are we doing with our lives? What else are we doing? And so we need to be informed. We really need to be informed. And not only of God's, a man's condition, man's condemnation and God's salvation, but also we need to understand God's faithfulness. They are new morning by morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every day. And the thing that when, when we look at our own lives, somebody once said, and this is a, this is a, a little poem that I've never forgotten and I love it. To look around is to be distressed. To look within is to be depressed. To look above to Jesus is to be blessed. We need to look above to Him all the time and get our eyes off ourselves and start really in our maybe sing, open up every day. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Right? Got to get our eyes off of us. I'm so selfish. I'm so stinking myopic. And I look at Chris Schroeder. And what a boring view. But when I look at him, I look at him and keep my eyes on him. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. 
Because in the Lord God, Jehovah is everlasting strength. You'll have perfect peace when you consistently look to Him. Moment by moment. Consistently looking to Him. God's faithfulness. Psalm 37 tells us of that faithfulness. Read that psalm. Psalm 37 is just absolutely wonderful. Actually, we look through the whole Bible. The whole Bible, we start to see how great God is. And then we look at the story of the Israelites and how they got self-centered and the eyes on themselves and lost the blessing. And God chastises them, brings them back, and they start looking to Him again. Etc., etc., over and over and over. And I remember when I first started reading, you know, through the Old Testament, going, wow, those guys really are a bunch of losers, you know? Then I go, ruh roh. It's me. It's me. I'm the loser. I look at those guys and I'm critical of the Israelites. And then all of a sudden I, I live a few years and I'm going, uh, as a Christian, I'm going, oh, I'm just like Israel. I take my eyes off, I take my eyes off of him, and I'm all of a sudden I'm in trouble. And I'm just, Peter, don't do it, Peter! Peter, keep your eyes on Jesus! You won't sink! Hey, Chris, keep your eyes on me. You won't sink. You won't sink. How do you keep this going? We need to be informed. We need to be informed. And not only... Uh, you know, the question is, are we truly informed? Are we informing ourselves? Oh, I just, you just don't understand, Chris, my time constraints on my life. It just, it just, just ravishes my schedule. Or schedule. It just ruins everything, Chris. You don't understand. And, uh, oh really? You got, you got 86,400 seconds like everybody else. That's how many seconds in a day. You don't have any more, you don't have any less. And you make priorities. What matters to you? What matters to you? Your relationship with God every day, and then going and doing what He asks of you to do? What matters to you? We talk about meeting the King, and coming and meeting the King. Really? Yes, we should. But we can meet the King at any time. At any place. And we can meet Him with sincerity and with openness. And He knows our lives. He knows in and out everything about our lives. We can come to Him. Oh, isn't that fantastic? we got a personal God. We have a God who actually cares about us. I know the thoughts I have toward you, saith the Lord. Not thoughts of evil. But I want you to have an expected end. I want you to know how much I love you. Schroeder lose paraphrase. This is God. This is our God. Not some vengeful uh, Hindu God that if you, don't, if you mess around too bad or you don't do it right, <laughs> you know, zaps you. Or it's not some Greek myth mythological God like Poseidon. You better make the sacrifice, Frank into the sea because we're fishermen and here Poseidon will zap us if we don't do this right. You know, right? No, that's not our God. That's not our God at all. Our God is a loving, caring God. Oh yeah, I mean yes, God will judge us and God will, you know, there is, actually, we don't, God doesn't, you know, God doesn't, we condemn ourselves. 
condemned already. And God sent the reprieve through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We need to be informed. And then not only should we be informed, but we must be resolute. Is that a cool word or what? Short. Doesn't, I mean, I'm not impressing you with I can actually say this. Resolute. It means to be fixed, to be focused. You know, sports guys say, yes, look at the intensity of that man. He can really hit that ball because he's in the zone. He is focused. Well, <laughs> we need to be focused too. And we need to be resolute. Uh, Daniel 1.8, would you turn there? Daniel, that's in the Old Testament, somewhere. After Ezekiel, that's right. After Ezekiel, you know, the major prophet, and then you got the minor prophets. And you know why they're minor prophets. It's not because they're under the age of 18. It's the length of the book. That's another preacher joke. And these are really, if you're like wanting to preach, you can get these online. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, Daniel 1.8, it says, But Daniel, uh, he was confronted with a situation in which they wanted him to eat this particular food. And people asked me, why are you a vegan? Why are you a vegan? Are you kidding me? You're a what? A vegan? Why are you? I'm not a vegan for philosophical reasons, for health reasons. But look at what Daniel says. And Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's food, nor with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, what he was saying was this. The point that I'd like us to look at is not that he was vegan or ate the vegetables or didn't, you know, drink. That's not the point. The point is he purposed in his heart. Oftentimes, we are confronted with situations that we have should have already made a decision whether we were going to fall into it. We make the decision not to look at the pornography now, not when we're sitting in front of the screen. We make the decision not to cheat on our wives or our husbands now, not when we, you know the heat of this, you know, oh, that guy's so handsome, he has greener pastures, or, you know, all that kind of stuff. You do that decision now. You purpose in your heart now. You make that decision now. Because we do make that decision. It is a decision. It is decisive. We just didn't fall into this thing. It is a decisive. And we need to be resolute. We need to be resolute in our conviction. We need to be convinced what, what Paul said, that the gospel is the only way. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you there at Rome also. It is the power of God unto salvation. We've talked about that. We need to be resolute in that. We need to have that resolute in our conviction. We are not, listen, I go to the assemblies, you know, we talk about the assemblies as there's some, some, some kind of uh, denomination. Not on your life. Not on your life. I'm not the son, the great-great-grandson of John Nelson Darby. I'm not. My grandfather died a Christian scientist. I come from a Roman Catholic family. You know, in the, in the Boston area. I mean, I don't, it wasn't in Boston. That's where the family comes from. And then the other side, the, the Schroeder side, they, they're like nothing. Except my grandfather had these intense headaches, and so he went with the Christian science route. He's a brilliant metallurgist. I mean, brilliant. 
graduated from college at 16 from Stevens Institute of Technology. This guy was like really smart, my grandfather, right? But he wasn't smart enough to know that Jesus is not some principle. But he was a person. And the thing that's really amazing to me, um, so I, I, I tell you that because when I come among the assemblies, and when I found out I was telling with Malcolm and Joanne yesterday, we were talking about, you know, coming into the assembly. When did you come into the assembly? I didn't know what an assembly, you know, quote-unquote, ecclesia, you know, ecclesia. And so that's, that means assembly. I mean, and it just they gather together in the name of the Lord. But we're here by conviction, not by convenience. I'm not here because they got a great youth group and they've got, you know, and they do all this junk. I do this because it's because it's New Testamental. I'm not, I don't believe in assembly principles. I believe in New Testament principles. You cannot defend the other way. You can only defend this. You can't do it. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not. I'm not sorry. Let me rephrase that. Let me rethink that. I'm not sorry because it is New Testamental. No pastor in the Bible. In fact, it's only used once. We had a, you know, at Tepsi. I said, okay, guys, let's look up the word pastor. Pull out your strongs. I said, how many times did it used? They went. <laughs> okay, let's look up the plural of that. How many times is that used? <laughs> and it should never be used that. Poiman doesn't mean pastor. It means shepherd. And it's not an office, it's a gift. And that's what the New Testament teaches. And that's defensible. And I don't care, you know, it doesn't, that's what it says. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't write this. So if I'm going to die for something, I want to live for something, and this is what it is. We started our assembly at Calvary Bible Chapel. We, five families got together and said, okay, let's look at what the New Testament says and see how we work. And it's so amazing. It's just really similar to this. We actually looked and studied. Remember that, Barb? We looked, great. We looked really long and hard. What does the Bible teach? Let's do it. Not that hard. It really isn't. But so we've got to be people of conviction. We've got to be people of conviction. I think we go, oh, it's like we're tossed to and fro. Did you ever hear of that? On a wind, every wind and slight of doctrine. Oh, what about this? Well, so-and-so said, oh, well, he said, what if they both say something, you know, something totally opposite? What are you going to believe? The Bible. That's what you're going to believe. So, you know, listen, bro, you've got a, a, nice, a beautiful wife, you've got a nice family, all this kind of stuff, right? Well, if, it, you know, you had to move or something, where would you go? I mean, I've had, a, I've had people say to me, what would you do? I'd say, well, I think of, and really pray hard about starting a new assembly. Start. Well, we don't got all this beautiful stuff and all these wonderful people here and all that. Well, he had to start somewhere. And teaching New Testament truth. I want to tell you something. 
we might be losing a generation. Because we who are now and say we hold to these things, do we really believe it? And if we really, we say we do, we give it lip service, and we really don't, we're not really people of conviction, we're really people of, convi- of convenience, what is that telling our kids? It's okay to compromise. Uh, I'm not, listen, this is what we need to be people of conviction. What does the Bible teach? I believe that that settles it. It's not that hard. It becomes hard when we get political on it. We need to be people of conviction. We need to be resolute in our conviction, resolute in our control. You know, the Bible teaches in Ephesians... Look, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And look at, look at verse 18. Would somebody please quickly read... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. You know, when I was a charismatic Pentecostal, and I was, I blew the socks off of Malcolm last night. And I don't know if you're wearing socks, Joanne, but you should have seen these socks flying across the sweet tomato place. It was really something. I said, we were, we were charismatic Pentecostals. Catholic charismatic Pentecostal when I first got saved. He goes, huh? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? And you know, and I, and, I, and I went to a Pentecostal Bible college way before I ever went to Moody Bible Institute and way before I ever met Pretty Barb. And I went, they gave me a full scholarship. I played basketball for them. And I was such a flake, but I could jump. <laughs> I could jump. I had two hands forward, two hands back, reverse jam. I, could, I couldn't palm the ball, but I cradled that guy, and I could just hang there and slam it. But when I weighed about 165 pounds, so when I had to box out a 6'8", 235, 245 guy, all he did is hit me, and I'm in the stands having popcorn. <laughs> you know, that's me. That was me. So I went to this Pentecostal Bible college. I went, I was charismatic Pentecostal until God straightened out my theology. Okay, I mean, I'm really mean. It, it, you know, for me to explain this, how much time you got, <laughs> you know? But I always choked at this verse. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Simply this, controlled. Controlled by the Spirit. Letting the Spirit of God control you. Having the Word of God, my understanding of it, plus my will, bent through prayer, plus the Holy Spirit in my life. And I've got all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get. Did you know, you know that's true? The moment you get born again is all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. I used to, I had, you know, we used to pray for people who got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you got, you got the Holy Spirit when you get saved. Yes, but you need more of it. Like there's like installments or something, you know. And I, you know, but the reality is, He wants all of us. We've got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get the moment you believe. He wants all of you. Now, what He wants to do, and this, is what this verse is really reflecting, is that He wants to control us. Be not drunk with wine, which is excess. How does a drunkard walk? How's it going? It's, oh man, it's, there's a car coming at me. Wow, you know. I mean, you know, it's just you got all this kind of stuff, right? And you know, it's got no control. What's controlling? 
be not drunk with wine which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit or be controlled by the Spirit of God. And one of the main things, if you read Galatians chapter 5, 22 and following, you find out one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. So if I lose my temper, where did I place it? You know, if I lose my temper, controlled by the Spirit or not controlled? Controlled by the flesh. We need to be resolute in our conviction, resolute in our control, and also in control, resolute in our love. So how do you keep this going? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. 2 Cor 5, 14. And so the thing is, when you look at this, how do I keep my life going? First of all, we need to be informed. And now we need to be resolute on the information that we have. Resolute on this. And look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we, we thus judge that if one died for all, then all dead, right? The love of Christ constrains us. What motivated Paul? Well, the fear of failure before God, but also the love of God for the world. The love of God in the play. You know, it's really beautiful. I love what somebody said one time, you know. You know, it's the love of God in and through us that is the key. I like, you know that song, channels only, blessed master, we sing the song and we do it mindlessly. Sometimes we do, we sing it mindlessly. But it's channels only. I, I, don't you agree with Galatians chapter 2 verse 20? It's no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I want to be a channel of God's love. I want that. God help me to do that. And so resolute in that. Did I tell you about Grover and Helen Wilcox? Huh? At the seminar. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you. Huh? Grover and Helen. Grover graduated from Wheaton College one year before Billy Graham did. Grover's a white guy. I mean, really white. We're not talking like, you know, almost, almost pasty white. Not pasty, but he was real translucent almost. I mean, really white guy. He and Helen wanted to go to Africa as missionaries. So where does God send them? Week Wake Park, Week Wake, New Jersey. You don't ever want to break down in Week Wake Park. Not now. And not when Grover first went there. It was a Jewish community that went, all the Jewish people left and the schools went down. And it was, it was just bad news. Crime-ridden, drug-ridden, and it was multiracial and mostly black. And Grover and Helen, who's also white, went into this and started a church called Calvary Bible Church. <laughs> Grover ministered there for 40 years. Twice he was beaten almost to death, tied up in a chair in his house. They broke into his house, got him, tied him up, and almost killed him. They did it in front of his son Peter once. They made Peter watch his father get beat almost to death. And yet Grover stayed in Week Wake Park, in Newark, a section of Newark, New Jersey. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They did so many kids meetings, they had to add a wing on, 
onto their building. And they had to put new carpet in, they had to put pews in, they had to get new Sunday school rooms, they had to get more hymn books, all this kind of stuff. Because of the effectiveness of what they were doing in reaching the lost. Truly, this place was a multi-racial place. You don't see that that often in terms of churches. And they had blacks, they had Hispanics, they had, I mean, they had them all. And Grover, this lily white pastor. He was there for 40 years and then retired. Turned the reins over. Guess where Helen and Grover went? Africa. Found out that he started a university in Africa. Found out that he started many churches in Africa. I think it was Uganda. He went there and did that. He died in 2005. Helen's still there. It's just amazing to me. Resolute. We need to be resolute, informed and resolute. I like what the old open-air campaigners used to say in Australia. Uh, my friend Jim Duffesey. Jim Duffesey. They have a song. Uh, you know, you asked me if I knew Jim Duffesey really well. And he used to sing this song to us, and I'll sing it to you. I like it. You ready? I'm going to do it in Australian. We met a couple in Aust from Australia visiting the, the beach. I have decided, I've made up me mind, I'll serve the Lord. I have decided, I've made up me mind, I'll serve the Lord. I like that, and there's more to it, which I forgot. <laughs> but the point, I love that part very much, because you make a decision to serve Him or serve yourself. It is a decision you're sitting here making right now. You're going to look at yourself and then start thinking about yourself or you're going to serve Him. It is a decision you make. It's amazing to me how much of a decision things are with us in regards to our growth with Him. Isn't that true? And so are we firmly resolute? And not only must we be informed and resolute, we must be obedient. Would you turn to the Old Testament to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. And look at this passage. And you know this passage. I'm sure you know this passage really well. Because it's when he comes back, Samuel meets Saul. And Saul doesn't do exactly what God tells him to do, right? And so he comes up, and Samuel rebukes Saul. I hear the bleeding of the sheep. What's this? Oh, I thought we could do this. I'll save him. And I'm, oh, I'm not going to obey God totally. I mean, what? That's the Schroeder very loose translation. But that's the sum and substance of it. He, what? You, you mean you, you expected me to really obey you like all the way? Wow. And then Samuel said, verse 22... Hath the Lord as great... I mean, He keeps these, keeps these sheep for future sacrifice. He does this. Well, we can sacrifice these things. We'll do it. What do you think about that? It's be fantastic, right? It'll be great. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. God doesn't care about the sheep. He cares about our obedience. 
You want to have an electric Christian life? Study the Word, understand the Word, and then obey the Word, and you will... Why should the Pentecostals have all the fun? You will have such an electric life, you won't believe it. You'll say, man, this is fantastic. So many cool things are happening in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's an electric charged life. It really is. Obey God. God will bless the socks off. God will bless your life. He will really do that. And so he says, now notice, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. What did they do with guys who were witches? They stoned them. They killed them. Notice else what he says. And stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. And so what, is, what does God want from us? He wants obedience. So we need to, we need to be, we must be obedient. Obedient to His Word, to His will, and to His work. I want to ask you a question. Here's a, here's a killer question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not faithful to God if I don't ask you this question. Do you know the will of God for your life? Do you know that what you're doing right now is the will of God for your life? Now, that's a, that's a squirmy question. In other words, we get squirmy. Uh, well, why'd you ask that? It was, you went from preaching to meddling. You really, I really liked you until that point. Well, my job is not to have you like me. My job is to have us look at the Word of God and have the Word of God can show us what we should be doing. And so, do we know what we're doing is the will of God? And I would say, if you say that and you answer in the negative, then you need to seek His face with everything you've got. You do. God, what would you have me do? I want to do it. Because you will not have satisfaction in your Christian walk and in your Christian life with a hit and miss, I might be doing the will of God, maybe this is cool, maybe it isn't. You will not have that satisfaction. You must know what God wants you to do and then proceed to obey God. And may you never say to God, may you never say to God, no, I'm not going to do it. Because notice what he says about rebellion. That's rebellion in the heart. And it hasn't changed. And this is what we have to look at. Can one man, I've been reading the book, I've been reading the book, uh, the, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Can one man make such a disaster difference in the world? Look at Adolf Hitler. Just look at Adolf Hitler. Can one man make a difference in the lives of 11 million people who he had exterminated? Can one man named Adam make a difference? And can the second man named Jesus Christ make a difference? Can one person make a difference? Can one woman make a difference? You take Susanna, Susanna Wesley, who had 19 children, spent an hour a week with each one of those children, and out of those 19, two of them turned the tide of the French Revolution, 
jumping the channel into England and made a quantitative difference in terms of people coming to Christ and like a revival hitting in England named John and Charles Wesley with a whole bunch of other people like George Whitfield, etc. Can one person make a difference? Can you, in your obedience to Christ, make a difference? He takes us and uses us. And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. He can make a difference in not only in your life and making your life better, but making your life a fragrance to a lost and dying world. Does He want to use you? You betcha He does. Does God want to use you? Does God want to use you in the lives of those grandkids? Does God want to use you in the life in your life around people around you? The answer is yes. Absolutely. It's just that we look at ourselves and we look at our limitations and we say, I don't see how it's possible. Mary, does God want to use you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does God want to use you, young lady? Without a doubt. Right now? Yes. I've never gone to school. I don't see that here. Trust me. That's what he's telling us. Obey me. And not only must we be informed, resolute, and obedient, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Cor chapter 12. And let's look at something because he wants us to be passionate. He wants us to be passionate. And as we look at this, we see that he spent a night and a day in the deep. He was caught up in the third heaven. Some people say when he was caught up in the third heaven, he's talking in the third person, this is when maybe he died, when they stoned him. They stoned him and some people say he died at that time and went into the third heaven. Some people say that or he just had this experience during that particular time and he revives he goes and goes right back in and preaches. This guy was an open-air preacher. And then he goes back in and yet he sees things that he could never mention. It would be unlawful, he says, for me to mention these things. He says, and then, verse 7, he says, and lest I should be exalted above measure because he had seen so many things, through the abundance of the revelations there was given unto me, given to me a thorn in the, uh, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I, for this thing I sought the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and notice what he says. Verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what is he saying? He's saying, I am weak. I am very feeble. I cannot do this. It's got to be God. God has to do it. I'm, I'm very old. I'm not that young anymore. I can't hardly get out of the chair. Hey, he's telling us his grace is sufficient. Praise God you can't do that because you would rest on your education. You would rest on your physical prowess. You would rest on all these different things. He's saying, rest on me. 
Trust me, I will work. Will you let me work? That's what he is saying. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Passion. (laughs) What a passionate man. We came down here last week and spoke at the at that conference and talking about what the church needs more than anything else today is a good dose of passion. We don't need another translation. We need passion. People get passionate about what there really excites them. Listen, we need to be passionate about Jesus. We need to be passionate about Him. If there's anything to be passionate about... Wouldn't you think it would be about the one who redeemed us, bought us with the price, gives us meaning and purpose in life, and a home in heaven? Don't you think that would be (laughs) the most passionate thing? I would hope so. Passionate for the truth and passionate for the lost. I look at those missionaries, and we sang that song. you, You sang, you talked about the five, those five missionaries, right? Wow, you talk about passion. Talk about passion. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott. But there were four other guys there too. You have Macaulay and Pete Fleming and you have all these other, you have these other guys that were there that gave their lives just like Jim Elliott did. One had a pistol, ran across the river, found out that his guys were his compatriots were getting slain. Come, doesn't shoot the pistol, comes back and allows them to murder him. They had a pistol. He could have, you know, a revolver, six rounds. Fire at once, those guys are in the woods. Passion. What is our passion? What's your passion? What is your passion? I mean, being honest, what is your passion? Is it the hurricanes? Is it Ohio State University? No. The Jayhawks? I mean, but what is our passion, really? NASCAR? I know a guy that wears... (laughs) He's got NASCAR belt buckle. NASCAR belt. NASCAR underwear. NASCAR laces. NASCAR shrine in his house. You go to his house, you feel like you should genuflect. You know? And the way you do that is, you know, like this. And it's just amazing to me. He's got such a passion for, you know. He had a chiropractor afterwards. What are we passionate about? Shouldn't it be Jesus? Our chief passion is Him. Passionate about the truth. Passionate about the lost. Giving them the truth. We must be informed. We must be resolute. We must be obedient and we must be passionate. You want to know how to keep these things, keep your Christian life going? Have these four characteristics in your life. Have them in your life. I was, uh, I did an open air meeting one time. A friend of mine calls me, uh, not called me, came 
we were students. At, I was a student at Moody, and he comes up and he said, "It's Friday. It's a Friday afternoon, I think it was." He said, "Chris, let's go in the open air." I I did not. I didn't. I didn't want to go, and I was feeling like a little achy. I said, "Ed, I don't feel so good." And he looked at me, I praise God for this guy. He looked at me, he says, neither do I, Chris, let's go. <laughs> I wanted to conjugate the Greek in the Gospel of John. I didn't even know Greek and I wanted to conjugate it. You know, I mean, I wanted to, anything but this. So he said, I said, okay, so God, please help me. Oh, please, Lord, help me. And I got the gift of evangelism, you know. But I mean, I didn't want to go. I wanted to study. So we get out there and I'm preaching. A little tidbit, want to write this down. Never preach in the open air after brushing your teeth with crest. It's called foaming action. And I am preaching. I'm preaching it right in front of the water, water towers over here. Water tower places right here. And so I'm preaching and I'm waxing eloquent. And there's this young lady standing there looking very, very stern at me, not moving a muscle. She looked like a statue. She did. She looked like a statue. She's like this. Did I tell you this? I mean, the whole time. I mean, I mean, it would have been cool to find out if she ever blinked. She's like this. Three girls were sitting on a curb. And then they had a little grassy area, a little like this much. They're sitting on this curb in the grass in the back. Right? I'm on this corner preaching away. And I'm going, and Christ! Christ died! Poof. Here it comes, and it's visible, big time. White spitball. Right here, and hits, I am not lying, between the eyes of this lady. Right here. Boom. She hits right, it right, and she does not move a muscle. She's standing there with this third eye. Spitball. Right there, she's like this. These three girls are falling backwards laughing. I mean, literally, they're going, ah! <laughs> Boom! Falling backwards. So what do you do? An open-air preacher, what do you do? You know, you go up to the person and go, sorry about that. You don't do anything. You just keep preaching. You know, and she just kept standing. It was really, really embarrassing. But that's the way it is. That's the way it goes in the open air sometimes. And then I gave the invitation. A young girl came forward. And she took the booklet. I pray with him first and then hand up, you know, the booklet. She came forward. She had trusted Christ as her personal Savior. She trusted Christ as her personal Savior. And her name was Megan. And Megan just couldn't. You know, she trusted Christ. After she trusted Christ, we, we followed her up. She went home, and she was living with her boyfriend. She led Tom to Christ. This is the greatest news ever, Tom. He trusted Christ. They separated. <laughs> Nobody told them, you can't live with them. Nobody said anything. They just felt like this conviction that they shouldn't be living together without the, you know, marriage. So they separated until they were to get married. She went home to her family and led everybody in her family to Christ. And 
Tom went to his family and led virtually everyone in his family to Christ. They got married, Tom and Megan Lenz. They have a family. They live in Chicago. Can you imagine if we said, nah, let's conjugate some Greek verbs. I want to tell you something. You want to have an electric life. How do you keep this thing going? How do you keep the, serve him? Be informed. Be resolute. Be obedient. And be passionate. God will bless your life. You won't even think about yourself. God will bless your life. You'll just, you won't even have time to think about yourself and all the problems you have. Just turn them over to the Lord. Roll them upon Him. Okie doke. That's how you keep it going. God will bless your life. He really will. Father, we just ask You, we thank You that You have given us everything in Your Word regarding godliness and help. And we just ask You that You would just help us and bless our life and help us to do Your will no matter what the cost. I thank You for this assembly. I thank You for the leadership of this assembly. I thank You, Lord, that You would just really continue to bless this assembly and help it to be a lighthouse in this dark world. And it seems that South Florida is darker than most. And we ask You that You would really minister. Minister, use this place, use the people who inhabit this place for your glory. Help us, oh God, to stop thinking about us, ourselves, but to think about you and to obey you and to do. Help us to be the people of God you'd have us to be. We pray, oh God, we're very serious. We might have radical changes in our life, but we want that because we want our lives to count forever. Please help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for having us this past week. Appreciate it.